We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles, but most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is really all about. And we find the life of Jesus documented in four books in the Bible called the Gospels. And today we're gonna begin in verse six of chapter 15. We'll actually go back to verse one of chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. We know it's the night that Jesus will be arrested by his enemies, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's the day before he'll be killed and crucified on the cross. He's just shared his last meal, the famous Last Supper with his disciples, and they're now walking together down one side of the Kidron Valley, up the other side in Jerusalem toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And during their walk and during their final meal together, Jesus has been sharing some of his most important teachings with them, the serious things about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And last week, Jesus began sharing what I consider to be the secret to living an effective and abundant Christian life. This week, he's going to continue in the same vein, and we pretty much left off mid-sentence last week. It's just continuing right where we left off. So we're actually just going to go back and quickly read through the first five verses of John 15 together again, and then we'll continue to talk about this incredible truth Jesus is sharing. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We talked about how that actually means he lifts up. When we're unfruitful, when we're not producing good works that bring God glory, he goes to work in our lives to clean us off, lift us up, and put us back on the rock that is Jesus. And then he says, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We talked about how that's referring to those things we can allow into our lives that consume us but don't actually help us live for Jesus. So the Lord has to go to work bringing those things to an end so that we can stay focused on living for what truly matters, living for eternity. Verse three, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He's speaking here about good works, spiritual fruit. He's not talking about salvation. Verse four, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We can't do anything good unless God does it through us. And so Jesus hasn't given us a long list of do's and don'ts. He's given us a list with one do on it. Abide in him. Live in close relationship with Jesus. Talk with him. Walk with him. Get to know him through his word. Passionately pursue him. Have a real relationship with Jesus. And out of that, good things will flow out of your life naturally. So what is this spiritual fruit look like? Well, if you take a look on your outlines, I put the famous verse from Galatians 5 on there. And the Bible tells us that spiritual fruit looks like love. It's actually not a whole long list of different things. In the original language, it's actually saying the fruit of the Spirit is love, singular. And then all these other things that follow it are descriptors of what love looks like. So what does love look like? It looks like joy. It's peace. It's long-suffering, that means great patience. It's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness. It literally means faith. 
It's gentleness. It's self-control. That's what love looks like, the love of God in a person's life. And so we can look at that list, compare it to our own lives, and ask the question, are these qualities present in some way? I know not perfectly. In some way, and are they increasing in my life? And it's not that the answer will tell us what we need to work at doing more. It's not that we need to say, oh man, I'm not very, very patient with people, so I need to really work on that. The answer will tell us whether or not we're abiding in Jesus. So you don't read this and say, I've got three things I need to work at. You read this and go, "Uh, you know what? I don't know that I'm really abiding in God the way that I need to be. In the book of Hebrews, it's also on your outlines, we're told, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, and then underline this, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Another of the the fruits that Jesus talks about and another of the fruits of loving him is that you naturally begin to want to thank him and praise him for his goodness to you, his kindness, his grace, his mercy. And I love that it says the fruit of our lips. So this is outwardly. You actually want to use your mouth to tell somebody, to sing a song, to in some way declare the good things that God has done for you. It's not something you have to work at. We're not going to have a class on how to be thankful to God. It's something that rises up within you as you abide in Jesus. And so we can ask ourselves, is thanking and praising God a regular part of my life? Is it something that I find myself wanting to do Or is it something that I hate to do? And when I come to church and they're singing, I'm like, oh gosh, I can't believe they're singing more songs. Another one, oh, come on. And again, the idea isn't you need to work on this if you're not good at it. The idea is that it tells you whether or not you're abiding in Jesus. And so you don't go, man, I need to work on my singing. You go, man, I need to spend some more time with Jesus because I don't find myself being very thankful, which means I'm forgetting what he's done for me, which means I'm not really hanging out with him. And then Proverbs 11.30, also on your outline, says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Evangelism, a heart for those who don't know Jesus to come to know him, is one of the fruits of abiding in Jesus. When you hang out with Jesus, you begin to get his heart for those who don't know him. Just as he looks at those who are lost and says, I wanna save you. I wanna give you a life that's gonna be better than you can imagine. I wanna give you the joy that you're looking for. I wanna give you the peace that you're looking for. Just as Jesus does that, his heart will begin to take you over and you will find yourself beginning to look at people who are hurting and have God's heart that says, I I want them to know Jesus, to have what they can only find in him and you begin to pray for them. You begin to ask the Lord for opportunities to share him with them and you begin to respond when the Lord gives you those opportunities. If you're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus and that doesn't ever bother you, you're probably not abiding in Jesus. We may be saved, we may be going to heaven, but if there's no fruit in our life, then we're probably not abiding in Jesus. In verse six, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, 
and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Again, what's the subject? What's the context of what Jesus is talking about? He's talking about bearing fruit. He's talking about producing good works. He's not talking about salvation. So he's not saying if you don't produce enough good works, go to hell. That's not what he's saying. And his point is that a branch that doesn't produce fruit is useless. And we weren't made to be useless. We were made to bring glory to God. In all of this, Jesus is actually hearkening back. He's referring back to something the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel wrote hundreds of years earlier. And Jesus is playing off some of the things that Ezekiel wrote. I think I put it on your outline. I'll I'll read it to you and you can follow along with me. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the prophet, saying, son of man, How is the wood of the vine better than any other wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Underline useful for any work. Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be, and then underline again, useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it's burned? Here's what that's saying. The wood, the branch of a vine, is useless as wood. You can't build stuff out of it. You can't even make a peg out of it, it's saying, to hang something on. Just a straight piece of wood that you could put in a wall. Can't even use it to do that. Even in a fire, it's terrible firewood. The wood of a vine is good for only one thing and in only one circumstance, producing fruit when it's connected to the vine. Literally, the only good things we're capable of doing are the good works that Jesus does through us by the power of his Holy Spirit when we're connected to him, when we're in relationship with him. Those are the only good things we can do. Well, I don't know, Jeff. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians And they do a lot of good things. Well, not according to Jesus. He said, without me, you can do nothing. We might look on and say, well, you know, there's this person and they go and they feed the homeless every week. And what Jesus would really say is he would say, I'm looking from a perspective you don't have. You're not the judge of people. God is. And God looks on and he says, okay, Let's first get rid of all the good works that people are only doing because it makes them feel like a good person. Let's get rid of all those. It's not gonna be a whole lot left after that. Okay, now let's get rid of all the good things that people do because it builds their self-esteem. And in the eyes of God, that's really a selfish motivation. We'll get rid of all those. And you go through all these filters and what the Bible says, what Jesus says is he says, at the end of the day, Everything that you might think is good that people do, that they do outside of God, not through the power of his spirit, God says every single one of those things, even though they look good on the surface, has an impure motivation at some level. They're doing it for their own gratification because of what they get out of it. People are even feeding the hungry, taking in the homeless because it meets some personal need that they have to feel good to feel like they're making a difference, to feel better than other people. It meets some sort of need. Does Jesus say, without me you can do some things, a few things? 
He says, without me, you can do nothing. And again, he can say that because he's actually the one, the only one who judges what is and is not good. He's the only one. Nobody can do anything apart from God doing it through them that's good, period. Isaiah the prophet, you know I love this verse, Isaiah the prophet, after getting to know God and who God is, said this, he said, all our righteousnesses, so in other words, all our supposed good deeds, he says, are like filthy rags. That's what they're like. We actually come before God and say, here's what I did on my own, this is really good. Isaiah said, listen, if you could see what good really looks like, who God is, and how pure his goodness is, you would understand that even the things we think are good are like filthy rags. And the tragedy of that reality is that when we try to do good works when we're not abiding in Jesus, when we try to produce fruit on our own strength, even when we think we're succeeding, we're not. We're failing because Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the only one who gives meaning to life. And a life not lived for Jesus is meaningless. And I really mean that. A life not lived for Jesus is meaningless. And we might say, well, I find meaning in my life and the stuff that I don't do for God. You're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. If he says that a life not lived for him has no meaning in eternity, we would be wise to listen to him because he's there right now. And through his word, he is sharing with us a report. He's saying, I'm not telling you it's going to be meaningless in eternity. He's saying, I'm there right now, and I'm telling you, the things you do apart from me are meaningless. They're worthless up here. The same way that if we were to travel to another country and they were to say, I'm storing up all these coins that are made out of wood, and then I'm going to come to your country and be rich, we could tell them with absolute certainty, it's not worth anything where I'm from. That's what Jesus is telling us. He's saying, listen, anything that you do outside of abiding in me is worthless. It's meaningless. If we refuse to abide in Jesus, we can do a whole lot of work in this life, but it's gonna burn up when it's examined by Jesus. It's gonna be worthless. What's a better way? Abide in Jesus, and he will do good works through your life that won't burn up, that will hold value in eternity, that will be treasure in heaven. So make a note of this. Abiding in Jesus is the only way to live a meaningful life. Abiding in Jesus is the only way to live a meaningful life. Then he says in verse seven, if you abide in me, and, and then underline this, my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. All the way back in Psalm 37, four, we read this. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And the idea there is not that God is gonna give you what you want. The idea is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, if you find your joy in life, in your relationship with Jesus, if you'll allow his word to abide in you, you will start to find that the things you desire will come from God, 
Not from commercials, not from what your neighbor has, not from what impresses people. Your desires will actually come from God. He will literally give you your desires and you'll find yourself desiring the same things for your life that he desires for your life. That's alignment with God. That's walking together with God. And when that happens, then God can begin to say yes, yes, yes. You know, when we're totally out of alignment with God, God can't say yes because we're asking for things that would bring destruction into our life. But when we're in alignment with God, when we have the same desires for our lives that he does, man, God can begin to move in a powerful, powerful way in our life. And by the way, what he wants for your life and for my life is so much better than what we want for ourselves He sees the full picture of our lives. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what's best for us, both now and in eternity. We can trust that the Father loves us and he's doing what's best for us. Now, did you notice that Jesus said, and my words abide in you, and my words abide in you. Jesus is saying, if you want to abide in me, if you want to stay in that close relationship with me, my words are going to need to abide in you. And from the very first chapter of this gospel, the gospel of John, we know that Jesus and his word are inseparable. They're one. When you read the Bible, you are reading the heart of Jesus. A huge part of abiding in Jesus is abiding in his word and and, and taking it into your heart. Because when we do that, it changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we process life. And we need to take it into our hearts because our hearts don't change as quick as our mind does. Have you noticed this? I change my mind all the time. Perhaps you've been in a relationship before that ended badly and it wasn't your fault. You knew they were the idiot. You knew that they messed up. Why do you still care about them? Why are you still concerned about them? Why are there still feelings there? It's because the heart doesn't change as quickly as the mind does. And when the word of God is stored up in your heart, you might have that moment of panic where you go, oh no, my whole life is falling apart, everything's going awfully. But the heart will ultimately override that. And if the word of God is in there, then that begins to shrink down and your mind begins to grow quieter and your heart begins to say, but I still know God is good. I still believe he's faithful because the heart doesn't change as quickly as the mind does. If you're going to abide in Jesus, you're gonna need to abide in his word and get it into your heart. So make a note of this. Abiding in Jesus means abiding in his word. Abiding in Jesus means abiding in his word. Verse eight, I have this whole verse underlined. He says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. And when we reach verse 16, Jesus is gonna add, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. See, you and I have not been saved by Jesus. We haven't been brought into a relationship with him so that we can sit around and do nothing while we wait to die and go to heaven or wait for the rapture to happen. Jesus is explicit here that those who follow him are to live lives that are about one thing, bringing glory to God. How? By bearing fruit. That's what your life and my life is to be about, more than ahead of, over and above, 
anything and everything else, we're here to bring glory to God by bearing spiritual fruit. How we live matters. It matters. So write this down. Once we're saved, the purpose of our life becomes bringing glory to God. The purpose of our life becomes bringing glory to God. That's why on little decisions and big decisions, we stop and pray and we ask God, what do you want me to do? Because our greatest goal in life is not to be successful in the eyes of the world. It's to bring glory to God. That's the filter that we put everything through as believers. Verse nine, he says this. I underlined this whole verse too. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed the, the staggering intimate oneness that every believer has with Jesus. And this is just one more incredible statement to that end. Jesus himself says to his disciples and to you and I, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now why does the Father love the Son? Why does God the Father love Jesus the Son? You know why? It's because he's the Son. <laughs> And that's what a good father does. He loves his sons. And Jesus loves us because we're his adopted brothers and sisters. We're also children of the father. We've been adopted into that same family. It's not because of anything we do or don't do. It's because we're family. And Jesus tells us himself that he loves us the same way the father loves him. Now, do you realize that whether you abide in Jesus or not, whether you abide in his word or not, whether you produce spiritual fruit or not, has absolutely no impact on how much God loves you? His love for you will not increase or decrease based on anything you do or don't do. His love is unconditional. It's because your family or his adopted son or daughter. And the reason that abiding in Jesus matters is because it's the very best way to live right now. It's the best, most fulfilling way to live out your earthly life. It's not how you get God to love you. He just loves you. It's the most profitable way to live for eternity. Abiding in Jesus it's about having the best life you can have on earth right now that will bring the most glory to God you possibly can. But abiding in Jesus won't make him love you any more or any less. God is love and, and he just loves you. He loves you. You might want to spend some time this week meditating on this incredible idea that the love shared between Jesus and his church, you and I, is the same as the love shared between the Father and the Son. It's incredible and that's worth reflecting on. Verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will, underline will, abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I don't know if you've ever seen those circular diagrams that go around in a circle and there's one that always cracks me up. It's the old dilemma of, uh, it says, can't get a job because I don't have enough experience uh, can't get experience because I can't get a job. And it just goes like round and round in an infinite loop like that of, of hopelessness. So <laughs> this is more an infinite loop of hope because here's the idea. If you abide in Jesus, 
you will have a desire to keep his commandments. And as you keep his commandments, it will make it easier for you to continue abiding in him because you won't be putting up obstacles by constantly creating a sin barrier between yourself and God. So the more you abide in Jesus, the more you naturally will want to and will obey his commandments. The more you obey his commandments, the easier it becomes to keep abiding in him. It's a cyclical thing that goes round and round and round. Abide in Jesus and you'll be fruitful, which will keep you close to him and make it easier for you to keep abiding in him. On the flip side, if we don't abide in Jesus, we won't keep his commandments, which will only make it harder to abide in him. The key to remember is this, write this down. Obedience to Jesus flows out of abiding in Jesus. Obedience to Jesus flows out of abiding in Jesus. There's no point even trying to obey Jesus without abiding in him. Obedience is what flows out of abiding. Jesus, our example, is telling his disciples, get this, Jesus is literally saying he would not have been able to keep his father's commandments if he had not been abiding in the love of the Father. The secret to Jesus being able to go through his whole life and never sinning once was his abiding in the love of the Father. He had such a close relationship with his Father, that's where he got the strength to do that. And if Jesus couldn't live a fruitful life without abiding in the Father, we've got no business pretending that we can live a fruitful life without abiding in Jesus. But when we do abide in him, when we do then keep his commandments, we find ourselves experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised because we find ourselves living life the way God designed it to be lived, which is the best way to live in every area of life. Verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is incredible to me. The purpose of what Jesus has shared with his disciples is to bless them by filling them with joy. Joy is nothing like happiness. Happiness is tied to what is happening. That's how you can understand what happiness is. Joy is something much, much deeper. It's a state of being that's not related in any way to what's presently happening in your life, but rather the things that you have that cannot be taken away by anything that happens to you. Joy can't even be understood intellectually because it's spiritual. It's the state we live in when we remember that Jesus loves us, he's forgiven us, he's given us a hope and an incredible future. That's the stuff that gives us real joy. This is the abundant life that Jesus spoke about and came to offer everyone, including us. Happiness is temporary, it has to do with what's happening. Playing a game of softball, the pitch comes, I hit it, it goes flying into the air. I take off running around the bases. I'm happy, everybody's clapping, life is good. The ball begins to curve. Stupid umpire yells out, foul ball. My happiness is gone. In two seconds, now depression, despair, loss, grief. But joy is something much, much deeper than that. The secret to joy in this life, joy that can't be lost or stolen, is abiding in Jesus, living in close relationship with him. So write this down. Abiding in Jesus is the only way to live in a state of joy. 
Abiding in Jesus is the only way to live in a state of joy. In verse 12, this is my commandment. Underline the word commandment. That you, and then underline this, love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're the only ones with him at that moment. So when Jesus says love one another, the one another that he's talking about are other disciples, other followers of Jesus. He specifically commands his followers to love everyone else who follows him. That doesn't mean you don't have to love other people, but he says especially. In other words, the identifying mark of people who follow Jesus is not going to be fishes on the backs of cars. It's not going to be t-shirts with corporate logos that have been changed to turn into something Christian. It's not going to be subpar movies. The identifying characteristic of Christians, what Jesus wants it to be, is the way that they love each other. He says that's what it should be. There should be a love among those who love Jesus within the church that is different and better and higher than the love that exists anywhere else in the world. He says, that's what I want to be the defining mark of my church. Now, based on what Jesus has told his disciples, what's the only way that they can love one another? It's by abiding in him. He's gone to great lengths to stress this over and over, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Then he says, I command you to love one another. The idea is that They can't love one another unless they're abiding in Jesus. How do you truly love your spouse? How do you truly love your children, your family, your coworkers, your classmates, your friends, your church? How do you do that? You abide in Jesus and as love begins to flow through your life, as you begin to love the things that he loves and the people that he loves in the way that he loves. And I had you underline the word commandment for a reason. Because don't miss this, Jesus had to command his disciples to love one another, which tells us two things, and you can make a note of this. Love is a choice, and we won't always want to choose it. Love is a choice, and we won't always want to choose it. God will never command us to do something that we can't choose to do. That's how we know it's a choice. We also know that if he commands us to do something, it's because we're not always going to want to do it. And that's why he has to say, I'm telling you to do this. If this is the first time you're hearing this truth, this is gonna blow your mind. Love really is a choice, even though TVs, movies, books, and seemingly the whole media world wants us to believe that love is a feeling. The truth is that love goes much deeper than that. Love is a choice. Lust is a feeling, but love is a choice. When we get married, we make marriage vows. Do you know why? Because we won't always feel in love with our spouse. That's why we make those vows. And the idea is that we make them in front of a whole bunch of witnesses, including a whole bunch of people who've already been married, because they know that we need to make those vows because the feelings won't always be there. And the original intent is that those vows would actually mean something and would hold your marriage together on those days and in those seasons when the feelings are not there. And when you got married, 
hopefully there were lots and lots of feelings there. And you're thinking, this is so great, you know. Ladies are thinking, I, I can't believe that I found such a Christ-like man to marry. Then you go on the honeymoon and, and you begin to think by the end of the honeymoon, you know, I've, I've seen some things like when he stubbed his toe on the beach and after he'd had those few drinks, I, I, I don't know if he's exactly like Jesus. You know, then six months into the marriage, you're like, you know, well, well he's not like Jesus, but, but he's doing his best. He loves the Lord. A year into the marriage, you're thinking, I need to win my spouse to Jesus. This is clearly why the Lord had me get married. After a year and a half, you're looking for an exorcist because the feelings will not always be there. Love is a choice. And the world says, follow your heart. Trust your heart. Be led by your heart. That is the worst advice you could ever give someone. Follow your heart. And the Bible knows that. That's why the Bible says, I'm not really on board with that. The Bible puts it like this. I put it on your outlines from Jeremiah 17. The Bible says, let me tell you about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's more deceitful than anything. It will lie to you more than anything and desperately wicked. That's what the heart is. God's way is that we would be led by his spirit rather than our heart. It's far better to be loved by someone who's choosing to love you than by someone who's loving you only because there are feelings there at that specific moment in time. Because, and I know this is shocking, you won't always be easy to love. You say, Jeff, you don't know me. No, you don't know you. You will not always be easy to love. You will not always be the kind of person who generates feelings in others of love. None of us are. Now, why would the world want us to believe that love is a feeling? Well, why would we get that message over and over again? I suggest it's because the world wants us to be ruled. The world wants us to live our whole lives making decisions based on our hearts, our emotions, and our feelings. Now, why would the world want us to do that? Because as we just read in Jeremiah, the heart is wicked. So if we're ruled by our hearts, our emotions, and our feelings, then we're gonna be ruled by wickedness. And why would the world want that? Well, because Jesus himself told us that right now the ruler of this world is who? It's Satan. And so when we choose to believe that love is a feeling, when we choose to be led by our hearts and our feelings and our emotions, we begin to live out Satan's plan for our life. And I know that sounds crazy because you're thinking, what, butterflies in my stomach and feeling passionate about something? You're telling me I shouldn't be ruled by that? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's how Satan gets you on his path to follow his plan for your life. The Lord says, no, 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 there's, there's a better way. Be led by my spirit in you and my spirit is gonna lead you to life. My spirit is gonna help you recognize the things that look good in the moment but aren't gonna feel so good later. We call those McDonald's moments in life, you see. So good in the moment but later on, Lord, what have I done? Cleanse me, Father. And when we recognize that love is a choice and we choose to be led by the Spirit, we begin to live out God's plan for our lives. So the first thing Jesus is telling us and his disciples is that love is a choice and he expects his disciples to choose to love one another. 
Secondly, we won't always want to choose to love. When someone is moving and they say, hey, I'm looking for help loading and unloading a truck's worth of stuff, I have never once had the natural reaction of, yes, can't wait to help. So why do we help? It's because we allow our love for that person to be greater than our desire to avoid a task that's not very fun. We make a choice and we choose to love. We choose to love. This might shock you, but I don't even like every Christian that I meet. There are some Christians I see coming in the mall and I just dive into the nearest store that I can and wait for them to pass. This is confession time for me. It's cathartic, it's cheaper than therapy. And I recognize that I'm probably that guy for some people as well. Now I can't choose who I like and don't like. I can't choose who I click with and who rubs me the wrong way. But I can choose who I love. Because love is a choice, this is profound, because love is a choice You and I can love people that we don't even like. You can love somebody you don't like because love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. The reason that you and I should feel secure in the love of God is because with full knowledge of everything we would ever do in our lives, the Bible says he chose us to be part of his family. He chose us. He didn't have a feeling one day He didn't look at us on our best day and say, oh, there's some potential there. With full knowledge of everything about us, every awful thing we would ever do and think and say, he chose us. Real love, true love is a choice. We can know that God's love for us is never gonna change because he chose us, knowing everything about us. And Jesus commands those who follow him to choose to love one another. Now, if you were to ask the average person, Hey, do you believe in love? Do you believe we should be loving toward other people? I'm pretty confident every person would say, well, of course, of course. We've talked about this before. The problem comes when somebody has to define love. And we live in a world that says, you're doing a good job of loving me when you let me do whatever I want to do. But not only that, you celebrate with me that what I choose to do is good. That's what it means to be loving. That's the general definition in the world around us today. You're doing a good job loving me if you let me do whatever I want and celebrate whatever I choose to do. The reason that's crazy should be obvious because if you parented by that philosophy, the government would remove your children from your home. Little Joey says, well, I don't wanna eat the dinner you made me. I wanna eat candy and ice cream instead. Now, if every night at dinner you responded by saying, okay, buddy, as long as it makes you happy, would you be a good parent or a bad parent? We all, every single one of us in this room, intrinsically understand we would be bad parents if we let little Joey do whatever he wanted. Get this, even if Joey said to us, well, what does it matter? My choice of food doesn't affect you or harm you in any way. All of us still understand that we would be bad parents if we let little Joey do whatever he wanted. Why? Well, this is huge. Because our society doesn't apply the same logic we just use with little Joey to adults. We understand it with parenting, but we throw that same logic out the window when it comes to adults. This is huge. This is why we all understand the little Joey example. Write this down. This is why we all understand it. Because we all understand deep down 
that love does what is best for the other person, whether or not it makes them happy in the moment. Love does what is best for the other person, whether or not it makes them happy in the moment. That's the logic we all inherently understood with little Joey, and that's how God loves us. God doesn't move in our lives with the goal of making us happy in the moment. He moves in our lives with the goal of doing what's best for us. How many of us are honest enough to recognize that we often want things in the moment that wouldn't be good for us in the long run? All the time, right? All the time. We're all like that. And we've all prayed prayers that we're really glad God didn't answer. Oh Lord, just let me marry her. I know she's the one. 15 years later, God, you are so good. You save your servant from the snares of the enemy. That's right. Love does what is best for the other person, whether or not it's what makes them happy in the moment. This means that sometimes being loving is gonna make the person that you're loving mad at you even hate you. A believing brother or sister who's in your life gets into a a seriously toxic relationship. You can tell it's not what God has for them because you can tell they're not on the same page with God. They're getting into a deep relationship with someone who doesn't even believe in Jesus. You know the Bible says they shouldn't be doing that. You know it's gonna lead to destruction and unhealthy things in their life. You have a duty to tell them the truth even though the response you get might be them angrily saying, Why can't you just be happy for me? Why can't you just be happy for me? Because I love you. Because I love you. And my goal isn't to just agree with you so that you can be happy in the moment. My goal is to love you and do what's best for you. And we're not the ones who are determining what's best. We're not taking that position. We're allowing God's word to be the judge. We're allowing God's word to say what is good and what leads to life as well as what is not good and what's gonna lead to pain and heartache and destruction. Love does what's best for the other person. Don't ever allow your desire to be liked, your desire to keep a relationship going, your desire to avoid conflict, to cause you to give someone a thumbs up when you know they're about to drive off a cliff. That's not love, that's selfishness. That's not doing what's best for them, that's doing what's best for you so that you don't have to deal with any awkwardness. We all understand that a good friend tells you when you've got a booger hanging out of your nose or your fly open. We all get that. This is just applying the same logic with life's bigger issues. A good friend, a loving friend tells the truth even when it's costly. Love does what is best for the other person. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Translation, I'm laying down my life for you because you're my friends. If you wanna know how to be a friend back to me, lay down your life for me by loving one another. So write this down. Jesus asks his disciples to be his friends by laying down their lives for one another. Laying down their lives for one another. 
We read that and we automatically think of death because that's what Jesus would do. But laying down your life for your friends is simply the process of putting them ahead of yourself. And Jesus was laying down his life for his friends long before he went to the cross. The cross was the ultimate expression of that. But Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to be my friends by laying down your lives for one another. That's what he wants us to do. Verse 15, again, I underlined the whole verse. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is one of those verses that just floors me because it's so glorious. To his followers, to his disciples, to you and I, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. I've called you friends. And that messes me up because a lot of the time I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job being a friend to Jesus. But praise God, I've never been the one holding our relationship together. You've never been the one holding your relationship with God together. He initiated it. He maintains it. And he's the one who's going to sustain it. And he calls me, he calls you friend. The same thing he called Abraham. And as a side note, please don't miss that Jesus says that one of the ways he treats us as his friends is by sharing his plans with us. And a huge part of that is obviously his future plans. That's what he's talking about, which are prophecies recorded in the Bible. And the Bible's full of them. So I was just thinking about this this week. Think how puzzled Jesus must be when he says, I love you, church, so I'm sharing my future plans with you, only to have most of his church respond by saying things like, we don't think your future plans are important. <laughs> or, well, that sounds scary, so we're just not gonna read or talk about it. Even though Jesus says, because I called you friends, I'm sharing my plans with you. Because I love you and I want you to be in on it. We love Bible prophecy because it's just that. It's Jesus sharing his future plans with us and treating us as his friends. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Jesus is not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the fact that he chose these specific 11 men to be the apostles, uppercase A, the early church fathers, the men who would lead the first iteration of the church on the earth. That's what he's talking about when he says, and that your fruit should remain. He's saying, I've called you guys, I've appointed you, you're gonna lead the early church, and the good works you do are going to last. And that's exactly what would happen. They wouldn't be destroyed by the persecution of the Romans. The early church would explode. The Apostle Paul wrote about what Jesus is saying here, and he put it like this. It's on your outlines. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I love that verse because it reminds me, I don't need to walk out of my house and say, okay, I got to find some good works to do. Any old ladies crossing the street? Any cats stuck in trees? Any homeless people who need a sandwich? I don't even need to do that because the Bible says when we're abiding in Jesus, we're gonna naturally produce good works. And in Ephesians 2 there, it says that God's even prepared those good works before the world was even made. They're waiting for us. If we will focus on abiding in Jesus, he'll make sure that we don't miss those opportunities. There's 
purpose to our lives, and the greatest purpose is to bring glory to Jesus. Then he goes on and he says that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And when bringing glory to Jesus is the defining goal of your life, the things that you're gonna ask him for will have that same end, bringing glory to him. So you can ask him whatever you want and he'll give it to you when the goal is bringing glory to him. Verse 17, these things I command you, he says it again, I command you that you love one another. How? By abiding in Jesus. Loving one another is it's a big deal. As we said earlier, Jesus said, I want this to be the defining characteristic, the identifying mark of my church. And we talked about how the one another are other disciples, other believers. That means that in order to be actively obeying this command from Jesus, you need to be around who? Other believers. You have to be around other believers in order to love them in order to lay down your life for them. You can't isolate yourself, withdraw from the church, and be actively following Jesus. It's impossible. Now you will encounter in your Christian life some alleged believers who talk a big spiritual game. They seem really profound, but the thing is you find that they drift from church to church and they never really get down to the business of actually serving other believers actually laying their life down for other believers in any measurable way. They're not spiritual. And they're certainly not loving the one another that Jesus spoke about. They've fallen into the same trap that many other religions lay. And the appeal of many religions is that they teach that you can be spiritual without having to love people, without having to deal with the messiness of loving people. All you have to do is follow rituals, make your pilgrimage, pay your money, and you're good. And the truth is we all like the sound of that. You mean, you'll tell me I'm spiritual and a good person and I only have to love the people that I wanna love? I'm in. Now when it comes to learning how to really live this out, how to actually be loving to one another, the Lord has been so gracious and he's given us two wonderful opportunities to learn. The first great opportunity to learn how to love one another is called marriage. It's a great opportunity. The second wonderful opportunity is called family, parenting, extended family. Because the truth is that it becomes more and more difficult to love people the more and more time you spend around them. Have you noticed this? Winston Churchill said, dead fish and house guests begin to stink after three days. The more time you spend with a person, the more difficult it becomes to love them. The only exception to this is Jesus Christ. The more you get to know him, the easier he becomes to love. But it's good to remember these two things. The spouse or the future spouse and family that you have are being used by God to grow you in love and help you become better at loving the one another. Those little things that might grate on you They're probably not an accident. They're probably divinely orchestrated by God to smooth out those rough, pointy edges on us. Because the truth is, it's easy to come to church once a week for a couple of hours and and, and love people. That's easy. Day to day, in the trenches of life, with the people you're around all the time, that's where this thing really gets worked out, the, the loving one another. That's where it's really worked out. 
And so I would just encourage you, if you want to know, am I abiding in Jesus? Don't even start with the question of, am I nice to people at church? Start with, how do, how do I treat those who are closest to me? How am I doing with that? And when I look at that, am I abiding in Jesus? Or am I just going by my feelings and my emotions? Being ruled by those instead of by the Spirit of God. You can't love well without abiding in Jesus. You're not a naturally loving enough person. You're just not. You won't always feel like being loving. They won't always be lovable. Jesus loved us first, even when we weren't lovable. He chose to love us. God is love, and so if you want to learn how to love, you need to learn from God. And that means experiencing the love of God. You have to experience what it means to be loved by God. And that can only happen when you begin to abide in Jesus and begin to experience his love and stay close enough to remain full of his love. The genius of Jesus saying, love one another as I have loved you, is that he's taken away the option for you and I to each determine what love is. Did you catch how he did that? He didn't say love one another. He said love one another as I have loved you. Because if we all got to determine what love is, oh, we could all do that. But Jesus said, no, I'm the example. And he said, the way I loved you, the way I laid down my life for you, that's the way I want you to love one another. Jesus has never once in his word given us a command to feel anything. Do you realize that? He didn't say like one another. He didn't say think one another are awesome. He said love one another, which has got nothing to do with whether you click with people or don't click with people. It's something you do regardless of feelings. He said love one another. He's the example. Your feelings, my feelings, your personality, my personality are irrelevant as it pertains to this command. Love one another as I have loved you. And our only hope to actually do that is to abide in Jesus and allow his word to abide in us. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, thank you so much that you have invited us to live the abundant life, the, the life that flows out of abiding in your son, Jesus, living in relationship with him, not trying to, to stir up good works, not trying to impress anybody, not trying to live a life dominated by rules, but to live in a relationship with the God who chose to love us, knowing everything about us, Lord, we'll never be able to fully understand how you could know everything about us and still choose to love us, to make us your own. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for loving us. And we pray that we would abide in you so that we can live out your commandment to love one another, to truly lay down our lives for each other, for the believers that you've put in our life and around us. That those who don't know you might look on and be amazed by the love that exists between your people. A love that doesn't look like anything else that exists anywhere else in the world. Help us to love one another. And may that flow out of being great at loving you, Jesus. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.